Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. Well, the coffee cup is full and we're ready for some great conversations and much more here today on AOA, Agriculture of America. Thanks for joining us. My uh, my world travels are over for a little while back in studio here today, uh, but been having a lot of fun traveling around from Orlando to Nashville to Fargo and and back to the studio. Happy to be here today. We got a lot to get to on our program. Coming up in segment two, it's going to be the February episode of the Monthly Grind with the National Corn Growers Association. We're going to talk about the relationship between corn and the poultry and egg industry. Really great conversation coming up here in segment two today. In segment three, we're going to catch up with the CEO of Growth Energy, Emily Score and uh, talk about some of their 2024 policy priorities and much more. And then coming up at the end of the program today, we're going to talk about some new research that could help farmers with SCN. Andrew Skabu with the University of Missouri going to join us coming up at the end of the show today. First up, though, let's take a look at what is moving in the markets. We got a February World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates report coming up on Thursday. Joining us now, Dwayne Bussey with Bolt Marketing. Dwayne, it's good to talk with you again. Hope things are going well. It's going great, Jesse. I've traveled as much as about 10 miles the last few days, so I, I'm feeling very lucky compared to you and your travels lately. <laughs> hey, you know what, though? At the end of the day, my travels, I'm getting to talk with folks and uh, and see uh, what their concerns are, what they're watching, and more. So I, I can't complain too much. And, you know, Dwayne, one of the concerns I've heard uh, time and time again is, lower commodity prices and, and we're seeing that continue here i think we set new contract lows in march corn overnight um it just it feels like the bearish all the weight has gone to the bearish side of the boat so to speak Dwayne. no you're right uh, all to the bearish side of the boat or the path of least resistance is lower that's another thing i've been using a lot lately and and they're all correct it seems like the last couple of days the funds backed off selling and you know, smaller traders try to pick the bottom and soybeans rallied a little bit. And it's almost like overnight they decided, okay, now we can pounce again and selling it pretty hard. Like you said, March corn, new lows. It it really is just one of those deals where we don't have a lot of bullish news out there. So the funds that are short are making money and they're making more money with more shorts they add to their positions. The funds will probably go wreck and make a new record short, uh, the corn market, I'm afraid. And just keep selling this thing as they go because we don't have that bullish stories until maybe springtime now. Well, I'm wondering too with the WASDI report coming up this week. I know the South American estimates, the Brazil soy estimates are all over the board between yeah. private estimates and USDA still way up there. A any potential that this USDA report could give us some sort of bullish information here? Or, or what are you thinking we're going to see here, Dwayne? No, I, I think there's sure that potential there, but I think it's going to have to be a, a real low number. Um, like for soybeans out of Brazil, you know, last time USDA had a report, it was 157 million metric ton. Everyone kind of agrees that that's too high. I think the trade estimates now are around 153. I think it'd have to be sub 150 to really get the shorts worried about the positions in reverse. And the reason being that he's, even if it's a 150, then Argentina's just over 50. And... 
there we sit at 200 million metric ton, which is a record for total South America. I think that's the problem is when you group them together, mm -hmm. we've got a big crop coming. Now, Brazil's basis actually firmed up a little bit as their farmers, just like our farmers don't like selling near the lows. But yeah, I'm afraid that's temporary. As harvest progresses, their basis is going to widen out again. And, and yeah, they're cheaper than us when China's looking at buying soybeans and China's economy isn't great either. So man, I, it's a lot more fun when I talk bullish, but right now it's just a lot of small bearish things adding up to a bearish market. Well, if I was looking at things correctly too, you brought up China. Um, we know that there's worries about their economy. I also saw though that Chinese corn prices and then Brazil corn prices both are, uh, if I was looking at it right, are more expensive than U.S. corn right now, but doesn't seem like that's translating into any demand here for U.S. corn, Dwayne. No, it's not helping right now. I, I saw a bullet point last night that uh, the trade talk is that China is actually buying some corn out of Ukraine now, which are a little bit cheaper than us. And, but I mean, our, our corn exports are not bad. I mean, for the no. month of December, you know, year over year, we're up about 32%. So they're fine. The problem is that the crop that we just raised has us over 2.0 billion for an ending stock. So we have plenty of corn to ship out, but it's just not that big buying that the trade really needs where, you know, there were some rumors China was going to buy 40 million metric ton and build up their supplies. And that's just not coming to a head. So therefore the market can trade a little bit lower and we're not going to run out of corn. Thoughts on the wheat markets? Uh, they've been pretty quiet here this week. I know we've had a higher U.S. dollar a couple of times. Have to think mm -hmm. that's a, a natural headwind for the wheat markets. Uh, your thoughts, though, what you're watching between all three classes right now? I, in all three classes, I'm going to combine it by saying it's hanging in there. Like you said, the U.S. dollar going sharply higher after the Fed meeting last week normally would just mean, well, here goes wheat back down to the lows. And to my surprise, we're holding in okay. Now, we're not trending higher, but look, corn made new lows overnight. So just the fact that wheat's hanging in there is okay for me. And our wheat supplies are fairly low here. What we're missing is a couple surprise purchases from China, and then maybe we could get a bullish market here. How about over the livestock trade, Dwayne? Let's talk there. Cattle had a strong day Tuesday. Uh, we look at things uh, kind of mixed across cattle and hogs on Wednesday's action What's your thoughts in this uh, livestock trade right now? Boy, is that a strong market right now? Um, you know, it just took off yesterday. There, it seems like it's the opposite. The funds are long and really just starting to get long. That's the fun thing. They've got plenty of buying power here that they could still buy this market. And uh, I, I think they're going to. Fundamentals look very good. You know, we had the cattle inventory report showing that we have less cattle than we did a year ago. I I know everyone's staring at last year's highs, and I got to say it is a potential and definitely a possibility. Uh, you know, yesterday live cattle really soared. I assume we're going to find out that cash cattle trade started to develop a little bit earlier, or the backers were buying the board because they know it's going to be higher later. So we're ahead of the cash market now in both fats and feeders, so that makes me a little nervous, and we're overbought. But boy, the trade action just says this upward trend is going to keep going. Dwayne, we got about a minute. Any final thoughts you want to share in the markets or anything you want to reiterate to folks right now? Yeah, I, you know, to try to turn it a little bit more friendly, I know I talk really bearish the markets right now, and that's fine, the grains anyway, because that's what they are. That's the trade action we see. But longer term, you know, soybeans, we still got to grow a crop up here next year. And uh, so I'm not selling new crop at 1170. I'm still bullish out there thinking we have a weather scare, something happens. All these funds that are going to end up being near record short, 
may have to get out of them at some point in time. So, so be patient. But when you get those rallies this spring and summer, you got to sell them. Dwayne, if folks want to reach out for some marketing advice, I know they can get a hold of you very easily there in South Dakota. How can they reach you, Dwayne? Yeah, they can call us directly 605-448-2365, or they can check us out online at boltmarketingllc.com. Dwayne Bussey with Bolt Marketing. Always good to have a conversation with you, my friend. Thanks for joining us here on AOA today, and we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jesse. All right, good stuff there. Markets with Dwayne Bussey from Bolt Marketing. On the way next, we are going to have the February episode of the Monthly Grind as we talk with our friends at the National Corn Growers Association and talk the relationship between corn along with the poultry and egg industry. That's next here on AOA. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts in farmers and ranchers just like you, and we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. Join us Around the Table every Tuesday, or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. If you miss an episode of AOA, you can listen back to the show anytime. Just search for Agriculture of America on your podcast platform of choice, and you can hear past episodes of the program on demand. Make sure to subscribe to the Market Talk YouTube channel. You can watch our latest interviews with top market analysts in the country, find bonus content, and much more. It's easy. Just go to youtube.com slash at Market Talk Egg and hit the subscribe button, or you can search for Market Talk Egg on YouTube. Paid non-attorney spokesperson. Are you over the age of 60 and been diagnosed with lung cancer? If so, you and your family may qualify for a cash award. Our experienced attorneys are standing by to evaluate whether you have a lung cancer claim that qualifies you for a cash award. The consultation is absolutely free and there is no risk and no money out of pocket. We only receive a fee when we secure you and your family a settlement. 250,000 people are diagnosed with lung cancer every year. You're not alone in this battle. We can help make sure that you and your family are financially safe and that medical expenses are covered. Again, if you've been diagnosed with lung cancer and are over age 60, call now. Don't delay. There are deadlines for filing claims. We're standing by 24-7. Call us at 1-844-903-1744. 1-844-903-1744. That's 1-844-903-1744. Attorney Advertising. William Stephacker Jr. is the attorney responsible for this ad. Main office, Grant, Pennsylvania. May not be available in all states. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo Today I'm going to help parents translate teen slang. Now, when a teen says something is on fleek, it's exactly like saying that's rad. It simply means that something is awesome or cool. Another one is totes. It's exactly like saying totally, just shorter. As in, I totes love going to the mall with Becca. Another word you might hear is jelly. Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous. As in, Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will think you're, um, rad just the same. To learn more, visit AdoptUSKids.org. 
A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA, Agriculture of America. Thanks for joining us here today. It is time now for the February episode of the Monthly Grind with our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. And today we're talking corn along with the poultry and egg industry as we're being joined by some great folks with the USA Poultry Egg Export Council. First up joining us, Vice President of the Michigan Corn Growers Association, and he's a NCGA Market Development Action Team member. John Damati is with us. John, good to talk with you again. Thanks for joining us this month. Yeah, good morning. Good to be back. Also joining us uh, as well, Jenna Gress. She is the Manager of Global Marketing and Sustainability at USAPEEC. Jenna, thanks for joining us as well. Thank you, Jesse, for having us on. And also uh, her counterpart with the USAPEEC, Director of Member Services, Mary Alice Kane. Mary Alice, thanks for joining us as well. Good morning. Thanks so much. Well, let's dive in. And first, for folks who may not be fully aware of what, who the USA Poultry Egg Export Council is, Mary Alice, can you give us a little bit of a background? Absolutely. So it's kind of a mouthful, as you might have realized. Uh, we'd like to go by USAPEEC for short. It's an easy nickname for us. But we are a trade association. We represent the U.S. poultry and egg industry who exports. And we represent all sectors. So we have everyone from our corn and soybean farmers who are members. We have trading companies. We have poultry and egg producers, cold storage facilities, you name it. Anyone who's touched by exports and is involved in the industry can be a member of USAPEAK. And what our main goal is, is to market U.S. poultry and eggs internationally. So we have 14 different offices all around the world, and those are our boots on the ground. And not only do we help to market poultry and eggs, but we're there for our members to support them with any trade issues they may run into, or if they're trying to get established in a market, we're there to support them for that. Uh, we work closely with National Chicken Council, National Turkey Federation, the American Egg Board, also the U.S. Poultry and Egg Association. So we're very much involved in the industry and making sure that we have common goals in place uh, across the industry. All right. Fantastic. Well, Jenna, uh, talk to me about how, how does sustainability impact our export markets in terms of the work you guys do at USAPEAK? Um, great question. Yeah. So sustainability... Um, Right now, it doesn't, it, there's not a huge impact. We haven't, um, I think the biggest kind of or region that um, we can't export to is the EU. Um, and that's um, due to um, the antimicrobial, and that's been going on since the late 90s. Um, that the EU seems to be kind of that yardstick of, kind of where sustainability and how it's going to affect um, exports. Um, so right now we are in this kind of discovery phase and working with the U.S. Um, Sustainability Alliance, um, trying to understand kind of where, you know, like what, what impact their um, kind of their legislation is going to have on what other markets um, will 
be putting into place. Um, so as part of that, we're doing um, sustainability research um, just to try to better understand what those customer perceptions are in our regions that we do currently market to. Um, and then with that, um, we want to try to um, better understand the perception of sustainability specifically related to poultry um, in a second phase. Okay. Now, Mary Alice, Jenna, before we get to John and some of the relationship between NCGA and Usapeak, I mean, what are some of the, any updates that you two could share or market priorities? You know, we're in the early part of 2024. Are there any sort of market updates that you could share with folks who are listening in right now? Yeah, I think one of the biggest updates is, um, is the tariff reductions that are taking place in India. Um, right now, they've, um, they have, it's slated to go into effect in March, and they're going to, they're reducing the tariff rate on turkey and duck from 30% to 5%, which is really huge. Um, still working on trying to get chicken, um, and that's a slow process, but it's, we've only been in the market in India since 2018, um, so this is a huge win for us um, right now. And so just trying to get our members, um, get them into India and, you know, learning who they can, who they're working with. And as part of that, we have our strategic planning conference um, in New Delhi this March. Um, so a lot of our members will get to meet with um, trade um, their in the market um, as these tariffs are um, being reduced. So we're really looking forward to that. Um, but next week we have Gulf Food, which is the largest food and beverage um, show, and that's over in Dubai. So we're looking forward to getting um, together with all of our members um, and um, working in that market. Um, otherwise, I think we have some big shows happening um, with in March and April, um, mm -hmm. shoveled several different trade shows um, where we'll be participating um, in Foodex in Japan and Antad in Mexico and Food and Hotel in Vietnam, um, as well as Food and Hotel Asia in Singapore. Um, so we've got a really busy spring um, coming mm -hmm. up, and uh, we know a lot of our members are involved in those. All right. All right. Well, I want to tie this in with the National Corn Growers Association, all the great work you guys are doing uh, with the Poultry Ag Export Council. So, John Damati, tell us a little bit, how, how do NCGA and USAPEAK work together? Well, it's, um, <clears throat> it's a really good relationship. Um, it's one that uh, I, I think both organizations have worked hard to build. Um, you know, from from corn's perspective, uh, obviously the poultry industry is a you know is a big customer. So um, you know, as as Mary Alice and Jenna both spoke to, you know, exports are are obviously um, an area that they uh, you know they specialize in. Um, exports account for twenty eight cents a bushel um, to the value of corn. So uh, corn has a very vested interest in what uh, what poultry exports are doing. And so uh, we've developed a partnership. Um, you know, we're able to have conversations, um, whether it's about you know feed uh, reliability, uh, feed quality, um, and probably the big one. Um, and I believe it was just touched on is sustainability. Um, the American corn grower, uh, 
we have very sustainable operations. We continue to improve in that area. And so as world demand uh, sort of makes a shift uh, to where that becomes a bigger piece of the puzzle, uh, American corn growers are, are definitely uh, in a great spot to be able to talk about um, their role um, in sustainability, um, how we're making uh, progress in that area. Um, and, and, you know, the reality is, is that I think a lot of uh, producers don't even think that they're, um, you know, that they're running sustainable operations, but yet um, they really do have um, very sustainable operations that, uh, you know, play well into that, into that market. Well, and I'll open this up to uh, everyone here, but, uh, you know, thinking about just that longstanding relationship and how the corn farmer could tie in with the poultry industry. And John, as you mentioned, a top customer, I think it, it all speaks to the economic sustainability of both injury or industries. They kind of both work together in that aspect, don't they? Well, absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I, I have to I have to back up a little bit and look at, at some history. You know, when <clears throat> when the corn industry um, moved into sort of the ethanol, the renewable fuel space, um, you know, I, I think livestock had some concerns about, you know, will we have issues uh, with competition for feed? And, you know, what what is that going to do to our industry? Is it going to make our industry unprofitable? And, uh, you know, the, the the American corn growers have proven uh, again that we're up for the challenge. Uh, you know, they stepped up, they, they continue to produce a reliable feed source, a safe feed source for the poultry industry. And so as we move into a phase here, um, you know, where hopefully we're able to, to find a market for more of our corn that, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's sustainable aviation fuel or, you know, diesel products or acrylic products, as we move into new markets for corn, these relationships that we have with our livestock partners like poultry, are are important because it it simulates the trust that we have with each other um they can trust us for reliable feed source and and we know that we can continue to have a market with them and uh again use peak has been a great organization to work with uh, there's great people uh they do mm -hmm. an excellent job of showcasing american agriculture and especially in the poultry industry and so we're we're very proud to be partners with them well, we are out of time. Mary Alice, Jenna, if folks want to learn more about USAPEAK, where can they find more information? USAPEAK.org, USAPEEC.org. Fantastic. And I know the corn growers, they can find info at ncga.com. Mary Alice Kane, Jenna Gress with the USAPEAK, and John Damati with the National Corn Growers Association. Thank you all for joining us here on the February episode of the Monthly Grind on AOA. We'll be back with Emily Score from Growth Energy right after this. National FFA Week is February 17th through the 24th, a week set aside for FFA students across the country to share how FFA impacts members every day. I'm National FFA Secretary Grant Norfleet from Missouri. What better way to show your support of FFA than to get involved in FFA Week? Whether it's in person, on the phone, or via social media, be sure to share your FFA stories during hashtag FFA Week, February 17th through the 24th. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. 
In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm Radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risvet with this market update. Grains and all seeds are mixed but mostly lower, led lower by soybeans. Soybean futures plunged in overnight trading on concerns about demand for U.S. supplies and as the harvest rolls on in parts of Brazil, U.S. exporters have shipped 27.5 million metric tons of beans to overseas buyers since the marketing year started on September 1st. That's down 23% year over year. Commitments to purchase U.S. beans have dropped 19% from the same period last year. And in Brazil, the world's largest exporter of beans, the harvest in Parna was 25% complete. That's as of February 5th. And about 36% of the country's first corn crop was collected. USDA will update its domestic and global commodity balance sheets tomorrow in its monthly WASDE report. This report is traditionally one of the quieter ones of the year, but the details of this report should have significant longer-term implications for the markets. The U.S. grain and oil seed balance sheets will primarily be impacted by potential changes to southern hemisphere production estimates, so that's where the focus will begin. The primary focus will be on Brazil's soybean crop, where StoneX's customer survey revealed expectations last week that the crop will total 150.4 million metric tons. That is down from 152.8 in the previous month. USDA put the crop at 157 million in January. A 150 million metric ton crop would not be small enough to justify rationing U.S. demand with higher prices unless we see an unexpected failure of the Argentine crop as well. Instead, we could see USDA cut U.S. soybean exports by 25 to 50 million bushels while bumping U.S. crush by another 20 million bushels. We'll likely see few changes of significance for the corn or wheat balance sheets, although we could see a small downward adjustment to U.S. wheat exports. The VIX has dropped below 13 this morning to trade at two-week lows, while the dollar has dipped back below 104 and crude oil prices are just a few dimes higher. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. Teachers are dynamic leaders, shaping a new generation. They bring a variety of perspectives from diverse backgrounds, innovating how they teach to prepare students for our fast-changing world. Achieving this takes skill and expertise. They're tireless explorers, creatively discovering a universe of solutions, telling stories, experimenting, inspiring, mentoring, Connecting cultures and connecting with each other. Leading by example. Experience the unique joy of helping students thrive. Teaching is a journey that shapes lives. Are you ready to begin? Explore teaching at teach.org. A campaign supported by the U.S. Department of Education, teach.org, and one million teachers of color. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA, Agriculture of America. Well, while I was at the Northern Corn and Soy Expo on Tuesday, I, I took a few minutes to have a conversation with Emily Score, CEO of Growth Energy, on the phone, talking about some of their 2024 policy priorities and much more. Let's listen into that interview with Emily Score from Growth Energy. 
always great to talk with Emily Score from Growth Energy, their CEO. Emily, thanks for joining us here on AOA today. Hope all is well. All is fantastic. Thanks for having me. I, I wanted to uh, jump in and talk policy priorities for the year ahead and more with you uh, here on, on the show today. But first, uh, you and I were talking just a little bit here, and I know you had some thoughts you could share. Uh, the unexpected passing of Bill Northey uh, earlier this week. I know a, a lot of folks in agriculture uh, really, uh, he impacted so many folks, a t really a titan uh, in the industry, impacted my career, and I know he's had an effect on your career as well, Emily. I am just, I think we are all in shock. Um, it's, it's devastating news. Bill was absolutely fantastic, such a warm, personable, genuine individual. Um, I remember fondly our engagements when he was in Iowa, when he was in the administration. And so our heart goes out to, to his entire family. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, our thoughts and prayers are with his family and loved ones. Uh, definitely a, a champion for agriculture that will be missed. Okay, Emily, uh, let's talk ethanol, biofuels, all, all the things. Um, I know you've been traveling. Growth Energy just had their conference. You spent time at the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association uh, Summit as well in January. I know you've been laying out a lot of the policy priorities for the year ahead for Growth Energy. So talk about some of those, what you've been telling folks uh, here uh, in the last few weeks. Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly exciting times. And I think we, we're, we're just coming off of our executive leadership conference. It was the biggest uh, conference that we've ever had, the greatest attendance. We have the greatest number of members there. And I think that speaks to where we are as an industry. A lot of palpable excitement and energy around the opportunities on accelerating use of E15, on, you know, the RFS is in a pretty good place. And all of the opportunities that we have with some of these new tax credits that we're seeing coming into, into fruition. And so a lot of opportunity, a lot of excitement. Plants are looking to invest, to innovate. And we need some clear signals from Washington so we can follow through on the promise that we can deliver for America's bioeconomy. Yeah, and really it's that bioeconomy that it's not just necessarily one segment. It's multiple segments that I feel like there's you know, you talk about some of those signals from D.C., there's so many different things that we are, you know, up against right now in terms of the overall bioethanol industry. Right, Emily? Yeah, I mean, so so what's exciting is for many years we talked about the renewable fuel standard. We talked about E15. We are still working hard on policies and clarification there. In addition... It's what we can do as we drive down the carbon intensity of our fuel, of not just our ethanol, but the other products that are coming out of the biorefineries, and what we can do to achieve our, our state, national, and, and global climate goals. So, you know, I think what's really top of mind for people right now, let's talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. Let's yeah. talk about the opportunities with low carbon. We need guidance coming out of Washington. So there's a lot of conversation on, we've made some, an initial round of investments, and now we're in a holding pattern. And we can't break ground on new facilities for SAF. We can't do more until Washington shows us that the modeling is going to reflect accurately all of the carbon intensity reductions that we're looking at on the farm, at the plant, throughout the process. So we've got decisions coming out of Treasury. We should have some updated modeling March 1st. We're looking for guidance on the clean fuel production tax credit later this year. That's the 45Z technology neutral tax credit. And we need guidance that is 
that's clear, it's specific, and it gives rural America and the ethanol industry a clear path forward. There's so much that we can deliver, but we need Washington to do its part. E15, uh, some of the latest on on the issue surrounding E15, uh, trying to get it year-round. I know we're still battling back and forth on that. Uh, uh, give us a, dive in a little more and give us a, more of an update on where things are at with E15 right now, Emily. So, so let's start in the state capitals. I mean, the past couple of years, we've had a lot of success in the state capitals. Right now, you've got Iowa and Nebraska have E15 standards. Five states have updated their tax incentives to help incentivize higher blends. Uh, and so a lot of the state legislatures and governors are trying to take control of the situation. We should be getting um, final rulemaking out of the agency on kind of the, the eight Midwestern states that have said, EPA, we want to opt out of your summer ozone pr- program. We want to be able to sell E15 year-round. However, so we've got good momentum. We all know that E15 is really going to take off. We're going to kind of have that hockey stick of growth when the federal government gives us year-round access permanently, something that's not reversible in court. That's going to be through legislative action. We've got momentum with Congress. We have a broader coalition of support that now includes many on the refining side. You know, many of the oil refiners are now supportive of year-round E15. So so that's the the, the, the big hill to climb yet for us is, is getting an act of Congress. That's what will give us kind of that final irrefutable ability to sell it year-round. We're talking with Growth Energy CEO Emily Score here today on AOA. Emily, I know uh, as well, it is uh, presidential election season. We're, we're seeing the field narrow uh, more and more here, and things are, are kind of coming into focus. Uh, is that something that Growth Energy is really looking at here this year is we go through this presidential election process in terms of, you know, finding those folks who are champions of ethanol and, and the bioeconomy, whether it be, you know, President Biden, former President Trump, Nikki Haley, et cetera, you know, folks who are still in this race. Uh, your thoughts uh, on how presidential politics can play into some of these issues impacting the ethanol industry right now? Well, of course, it's it's hugely important. Not only are we attentive, but, you know, we engage early on in the primary process. Um, we know when the field is bigger to make sure that we many of my members hosted tours for the candidates. Um, and that's always a fantastic opportunity to educate them because, you know, you've got two objectives. You want to make sure that the ultimate nominee, of course, is on the record and supportive of, of the industry. But everybody who starts out in the field and then returns to their role as a senator or a governor or a diplomat, you want them to return more of a biofuel champion than when they started the process. And that is certainly the case when you look at the comments that we saw and the commitments and expressions coming out of, of Governor DeSantis and, and others. So, um, you know, we don't choose who will be in the office next. We want to make sure that we as an industry be, can have an effective working relationship with Republicans and Democrats, with whomever that next administration might be. Um, right now, you know, we, we try to be a resource for these campaigns, educate them, help them understand what we are as an industry and the value that we provide and the potential value that we provide for rural America and the rural economy. I know as well, I mentioned this, uh, you guys just had your executive leadership conference uh, in Florida. And just, uh, Emily, talk about some of, kind of circling back to the optimism and, and those things. I mean, what are some of the things you heard from folks throughout the industry at your conference and, you know, some of those, ex- the excitement that is out there as we begin a new year? Talk about that a little bit. 
You know what I heard, and it's what I've been hearing when I go and I visit members. It's so exciting, the diversity of the ingenuity and the creativity. Every plant at an individual plant level is looking at what can we do to optimize our performance, to reduce our carbon intensity. And they're taking into account their geography, their logistical situation. Um, so it's not just a conversation on carbon pipelines. That's one avenue that many plants are looking at. There's carbon sequestration. There's creativity with capturing and utilizing that carbon. When you do you know, any of those three, you're going to really reduce the carbon intensity. So a lot of detailed conversations about what they're planning. You know, the plant CEO is sitting down with kind of the innovative tech provider and they're, and they're exploring comes some exciting opportunities. You know, but that conversation always inevitably leads back to Washington and waiting for guidance so that we know what these tax credits, they will get credit for the investments that they're making because it has to make sense economically. So a, a wide array of conversation, a broader array of conversation and exploration than we've really ever seen in an industry. But the roads all do lead back to Washington and that strong signal from the administration that, yes, in fact, we 100% are making sure biofuels are part of our low carbon economy moving forward. You, you did mention the carbon pipelines, and I just I, I know that largely that has been a state by state issue. Uh, but to your point about all roads leading back to Washington, I, I guess to me, I know this is a very volatile issue, Emily. It's, it's a very hot button issue with folks on both sides. And I've always taken the stance of, hey, have a good, honest Midwest conversation about this and get educated on it. Would, would you agree with that? Is that what needs to happen with a contentious issue like this that could have a big impact on the industry? I agree, and, and I do sense that those conversations are starting to happen, I think, in a more productive way. And so it is a local issue. It's not something that the federal government is going to weigh into. So we're talking about local communities, local farmers, and, you know, we as an industry need to make sure that we are having these conversations, that we're educating our friends and our families and our community leaders about why our ability to transport and sequester carbon is going to be good for the entire community in terms of kind of the jobs and the economic opportunities. So I think those conversations, my sense, and, and we keep a, a, a close, you know, we keep our finger on the pulse of this. Is my sense is I think those conversations are coming along as we all want them to be. Uh, and so I, I'm optimistic in that regard. Always insightful. Really appreciate the time and the conversation. And we will let you go with that. And I know we'll talk to you again real soon. CEO of Growth Energy, Emily Score. Emily, thanks uh, for the commentary and uh, the conversation. Really appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Once again, great stuff there. Talking with Emily Score, Growth Energy uh, Tuesday during the Northern Quarter Soy Expo. I was able to get her on the phone for a conversation. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk about a new novel discovery that could fortify farmers' defenses against SCN. We'll learn more about that next here on AOA. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section. When Dad injured his back, when your basketball star tore his ACL, opioids helped with the pain, and you held on to them just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Opioids are powerful pain-reducing prescription medicines, but most people who are prescribed opioids don't finish their prescriptions. So millions of unused opioids are sitting at homes across the country. 
And tragically, more than 100 Americans die every day from overdoses involving opioids. What can you do to protect your family? Remove the risk of unused opioids from your home. Pills, patches, or syrups in drawers, purses, and cabinets, anywhere they might be hiding. To find out how to dispose of them properly, visit www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. You can't escape a traffic jam. Know what else you can't escape? Seasonal allergies. And you might think you can avoid that coffee stain until... Oh, really? You can't escape a lot of things in life, but you can escape prediabetes. Prediabetes captures one in three adults. There are usually no signs of prediabetes. In fact, most people don't even know they have it. But with early diagnosis, you can change the outcome and prevent or delay type 2 diabetes. Take action by taking the one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. You might not be able to escape having this song stuck in your head. But you can escape prediabetes. Go to doihaveprediabetes.org today. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Wheat Growers of the North, it's time to push performance with Westbred Wheat. With regionally proven varieties like WB9606 with good stress tolerance and WB9719 with outstanding yield potential and excellent standability. Trust Westbred Wheat to help you get the most out of every acre. Now's the time. Boldly grow. Seize the season with Westbred Wheat. Performance may vary. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. When it comes to cereal disease protection, Prosaro Pro 400 SC fungicide from Bayer makes all the difference. With three effective active ingredients for overlapping control of foliar and head diseases and a flexible application window for head scab, it's formulated to lower dawn, protect yield potential, and promote superior grain quality. Prosaro Pro, the future of plant health starts here. Visit prosaropro.com to learn more. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. When news happens in agriculture or when the markets are moving, we've got you covered as your trusted voice in agriculture. The team at the American Ag Network has the knowledge and experience to keep you informed on the issues impacting farmers and ranchers. We've got you covered on air, online, and on demand. Find the American Ag Network on your favorite social media platforms and also follow the American Ag Today podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We are the American Ag Network. Make sure to subscribe to the Market Talk YouTube channel. You can watch our latest interviews with top market analysts in the country, find bonus content, and much more. It's easy. Just go to youtube.com slash at Market Talk Egg and hit the subscribe button. Or you can search for Market Talk Egg on YouTube. Get the latest bonus interviews, exclusive content, and more with the American Ag Today podcast. Just search for American Ag Today and give us a follow wherever you get your podcasts. Every day, our brave military men and women, along with their families, make tremendous sacrifices for our freedom. Patriotic Hearts, a nonprofit organization, is dedicated to supporting these heroes and their families in their times of need. By donating your unwanted card to Patriotic Hearts, you'll be supporting job transition and job fair programs, veteran entrepreneurship, counseling, and retreats for combat veterans and their spouses. Call 800-560-3870. You'll receive a tax deduction and we'll arrange a free pickup at your convenience. 
Imagine the difference you can make in the lives of those who have given so much for our country. Your car donation will directly impact military families, veterans, providing them with the support they desperately need. Call 800-560-3870. You can become a part of something bigger. Join us in our mission to uplift and honor our military community. Call 800-560-3870 to donate your unwanted card. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA as we continue today's program and really excited uh, to have a conversation about this, a new novel discovery that can help farmers, their defenses against soybean cyst nematode, uh, really such a yield robbing pest. And we are going to talk about what this discovery could mean. Joining us right now, he is an assistant professor in the Division of Plant Science and Technology at the University of Missouri. Andrew Skabu is with us. Andrew, thanks for joining us here today on AOA, and we appreciate the time. Hope you're doing well. Uh, doing great, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Andrew, let's start. Can you give us just a, a kind of an overview of what this new novel discovery is and how it could help farmers with SCN? Yeah, th uh, thanks for the opportunity, Jesse, to uh, talk about this discovery. It was a collaborative effort between um, scientists and students and faculty at the University of Missouri, uh, the University of Georgia, as well as the USDA. And maybe most importantly uh, for your audience, um, this research was supported by checkoff dollars. So um, the checkoff system supports research, education, and promotion of soybean and um, is a you know self-imposed um, uh, uh, checkoff system by farmers and mm -hmm. uh, you know we really appreciate the support of the farmers for this research and so the research is uh, foundationally a new discovery of a gene that will help combat the most virulent nematode populations that farmers have in their fields today so over the last three or four decades of intensive farming of soybean, we've really utilized only one type of resistance, one gene, and that is found in PI88788. Because we've only, excuse me, because we've only used one type of resistance, now we have nematode populations in farmers' fields that are able to overcome that resistance. And I think it's, um, arguable that many farmers uh, do not have good SCN protection in their fields today uh, mm -hmm. using that same source of resistance. Um, well, so you, you mentioned PI88788 and it, it really, you know, looking at this discovery and adding to, you know, Peking defenses here. I mean, to your point, a lot of farmers, they're finding SCN in their fields when it's too late, aren't they, Andrew? Yeah, that's right. And um, an important um, point is that the SCN populations that they do find are extremely virulent. So they overcome 88788 type resistance. So the other option farmers have is Peking type resistance. And that resistance relies on three genes. Um, and it's completely different from PI88788 resistance. 
So that's what farmers need in their fields today. Those three genes that are found in Peking, they need that in their field for the populations they have. We have a lot of data collected across the entire upper and uh, middle Midwest that shows Peking type resistance is what farmers need. So our, what our discovery is of GM SNAPO2 is a fourth gene. So farmers can utilize this gene if they have populations that have overcome peaking type resistance. So it really is a, 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 a new and exciting discovery that will help farmers today, but also into the future. Uh, one last important uh, point of the discovery and the functionality of the gene is that what we found, uh, um, Dr. Melissa, Melissa uh, Mitchum at the University of Georgia, her group found that this gene is controlled resistance by a loss of function. Uh, what that means is that we can use CRISPR gene editing to knock out this gene and gain resistance, which is extremely valuable for, for breeding and for farmers to get this technology in their field. Well, Andrew, uh, what are some of the next steps here with the research you guys have been doing and continue to do? I know that a lot of times things like this, they take time. It's not an overnight thing with all the work you guys in, are doing in trials. So what are some of the next steps uh, with this new technology and this new discovery? Yeah, it's a great, great point, Jesse. We, um, it took us four years minimum. And, you know, in science, we stand on the shoulders of giants. So it's accumulation of 80 years of soybean <laughs> nematode research, but just this single discovery took a minimum of four years for us. Um, and now our next step is to, we really wanna evaluate this gene's effect on yield. So the first question I always get is, if I incorporate this gene into our breeding program, is it gonna be detrimental to yield? That's such an important um, question, and that's one we hope to have answered in the next couple of years. Yeah. And we're also um, we're also looking for more genes and new genes mm. that are um, contributing to SCN resistance, that are novel um, modes of action to help not only increase yields by protecting from SCN but also manage the SCN population so it doesn't get out of hand. Yeah. And I think that's a big point is managing that population. And I would have to think, you know, for growers here in the short term, continuing to scout their fields, pay attention. And if they do find SCN populations, you know, trying to take care of them as best as they can here in the short term. Right, Andrew? That's right. It is so, you know, it's one of those, um, stresses and biotic path, you know, pathogens that you, when you see foliar symptoms, you have a major problem, mm -hmm. you know, so, and it's, um, if you have large population densities in your field, um, you're losing yield, um, without seeing foliar symptoms. So it's really, it's a yield robber in disguise, you know? Um, so doing soil tests, understanding what nematodes do I have in my field is extremely important for farmers. It's the first step before deciding on resistance or management strategies. You have to know what's there, right? If you don't mm -hmm. know what's there, then um, it's hard to make good, good future plans. And if it is there, it's robbing yield. There's, there's no doubt about it. So you have to manage it. Well, Andrew, appreciate the thoughts, and we're going to share some links on the AOA social media to uh, these discoveries and the research and more. 
Andrew, really, uh, thanks for the time here today on the show. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon. Jesse, thanks so much, and good luck for a successful 2024 planting season for everyone. I couldn't agree more. With that, we're out of time here on AOA Agriculture of America. I'm Jesse Allen. Have a great rest of your day. Non-attorney paid spokesperson. Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Does it seem like the bank has no interest in helping you save your home and you feel like you have nowhere to turn for help? Then we have good news for you. Foreclosure Protection Services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. That's all they do. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, it's critical that you call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, Foreclosure Protection Services can help stop the foreclosure process. Call today before it's too late. New laws are in effect that may save your home. Call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701. My name is Ariel. When I arrived in the U.S. at 19, I struggled to find job opportunities without my high school diploma. My entire life changed when I took a chance and got my high school diploma at age 22. Everything I have, my education, my career, my marriage, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and my teachers. They were with me every step of the way, helping with my English and math, making sure I pushed through all the challenges. Ariel, your success proves that what I'm doing as a teacher has real meaning. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. Education was the key that unlocked all my opportunities. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council.